So I read that the Pew Bibles got moved out, and I was trying to sell them from the back there, but I didn't get too many takers, because um, I kind of wanted to have an open Bible in front of you today, but you may, if you have your phone app Bible, um, turn to Exodus 33 and 34 now. Um, otherwise, hopefully you did it before, and, or hopefully you know it well enough you can answer my questions without looking. Exodus 33, I'm going to begin at verse... Um, where did it go? 12. Read to the end of that chapter and then 6 and 7 in 34. Hear the word of God. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. on the phone anyways. Okay. Um, so, just wanted to note one thing, because it's not in the message later. As we were reading, I noted that it says, Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets. Do you know who made the first two stone tablets? God. 
with his finger. I just found it kind of ironic that this time, that's part of the punishment, this time you've got to chisel him out by hand instead of just having God write him with his finger. Interesting, little details. So today, this is sort of the, the credits uh, slide, so if it doesn't make any sense, it will in a second. Um, my new friend, Tim Mackey, so you're going to start hearing Tim Mackey almost as much as you used to hear Bema, because I've moved on from Bema. I haven't gotten rid of them, I've just finished them. I'm now listening to Tim Mackey a lot, and he does something called The Bible Project, which is really cool, because in minutes, he will take you through an entire book of the Bible and explain its overall trajectory or its story. Um, but I'm listening to Exploring My Strange Bible, in which he always introduces himself as a language and history Bible geek. Um, and he is. It's amazing. He just loves to dig into stuff. And I love to borrow things that other people have already dug into, to be simple and honest about it. And I will tell you those things. So again, today, much of the good material that you will hear today comes from Tim Mackey. And he says, everything we learn about God comes through story and poem. And if you think about what theology is, all the stuff that Sam read in the Belgian Confession and so on in the back of our hymnal, none of that comes through story. Right? And we need to be deeply aware of this. It's not a bad thing. It's just two different ways of understanding. The Bible says, here's the story, and from that story you can experience the truths of who God is, and you can see them as stories are wont to do from a, a myriad of perspectives. Or, here's a poem, and it says things about God, but it says it in a poetic way, and if you understand art and poetry and, and, and all those kinds of things, you realize there's nuance and feeling and flow to those kinds of things. Our history, I think it's fair to say, of theologizing is trying to say, what's the truth? What's the right answer? What's the way of understanding this thing? And that's a very worthwhile project. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but we should always understand that that truth originally came out of story and experience and poetry, as we're going to see today. I was going to say next slide, please, but I'm doing that myself. The story of Exodus. So a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, we talked about Moses and his call and all his questions and complaining to God and don't send me, send somebody else. After that, he goes to Egypt. There's the 10 plagues, which get them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, right? Enter the, their wilderness experience. They receive the 10 commandments. That's Exodus 20. And then that gets expanded all the way up to Exodus 31. And then in Exodus 32, what happens? In two words, anyone? Golden calf, yeah, golden calf. And if you don't know the golden calf, I better catch you up because it's, it's a huge deal, right? Because everything on the screen, that's really cool stuff. Ten plagues on your behalf, crossing the Red Sea by parting it, right? Giving you the law directly in such a way that you're terrified because the mountain might blow up and, right? So you know God's there. And the first two commandments, I've been testing some people on it. We have a hard time knowing what the first two commandments are, by the way. It's love only the Lord your God, and don't use idols. And they take all the gold that God told them to ask for from the Egyptians, and in Aaron's word, he just threw them in the fire, and suddenly a calf came out. I'm guessing somebody sculpted the calf. That's how that works usually, right? So they broke the first two commandments, boom, right off the bat, right after God came and gave them to them and did all of these wonderful things. So you're a parent, and you've just lavished all of your goodness on your child and gave them the most amazing birthday party, for example, they could possibly imagine. 
And the next day they run out of the house saying, I hate you. How are you feeling? Right? That's kind of what's going on here. That's the story. Right? And if you read Exodus 32, God wants to wipe them out. And that's a good feeling response, if you may be so bold. But Moses, I'm starting to rethink Moses, because remember in Exodus 3, he seemed like a pretty lame leader because he kept saying, no, 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 I can't do this, I can't do that. And God said, you don't need to, I got this, I'll be with you. All of that stuff was pretty bold. That's Moses' superpower. This guy's bold. God says, these horrible people broke the top two commandments I just gave them. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses goes, God, you can't. That won't look good on you. Wasn't that a bold thing to say to God? God, if you want to keep your reputation, you can't do that because these are your people. They've been named by you. They're being formed by you. And if anybody sees you wipe them out, that's on you. That's bold. Pray that boldly. Try that with God. Have that conversation with God. Now, we're reading the passage following Exodus 32, and you needed to know this much history because it totally shapes how we understand the really amazing words that we're going to look at, particularly in verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34. But let's get there first. Intimacy with God. I'd like to tell the people I met with on Thursday evening that I had this slide written before we met on Thursday evening. And that's really cool to me. And the rest of you are going, so what, Eric? That doesn't help. I will explain. We met to talk about prayer. And what I heard everybody saying around the room was that however we pray and whatever we do in prayer, the point of prayer, in my summary, would be to help us have a deeper intimacy with God. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Mountain View Church is a very well-organized place. This is a well-run machine, right? And so when we start thinking about how we're going to do prayer, our default mode as Mountain View people is to make sure whatever we do, we're going to do it well and right and organized and structured. And that's cool. Please keep doing that because I'm not much help in that area. But with something like prayer, however well and beautifully organized it is, if it does not help us get a deeper intimacy with God, it's nothing, right? First Corinthians 13, I can have all kinds of knowledge, all kinds of gifts. I can be the most generous person in the world if I have not love. If I have not intimacy with God, I have nothing. And when I start slipping into First Corinthians 13 regularly, you know I'm doing a lot of weddings lately. Moses said to the Lord, you have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. And if you notice in the reading, he says this twice, right? Um, God has expressed his intimate love and personal desire to be connected with Moses. He's found favor with him. And again, this week I had the beautiful experience of walking with somebody who also listened to God and received this kind of a message where God said, I love you. I'm here for you. I've got you. And I want to ask all of you, are there times along the way, do you at least have some memories of your connection with God, your prayer life, not being about, this is how I grew up praying, Lord, Lord bless the food for Jesus, like, anyone else do that one growing up, right? Getting past that, of course, and that's a great starting point to, oh God, wow, thank you, speechless understanding that you're in the presence of God, and you know I wish more than anything else that I could stand up here and give you three easy steps to have that intimacy, but I'm not even going to try because I know I can't do that. 
But that's what we're looking for. Keep that in your mind. That it's not that we've done the things, it's that we have sensed and experienced the presence of God. Like, I'm so amazed with Sam because though I have done lots of theology, if I would stand up here and read to you quotes from the Belgic Confession, I would probably not be in tears. That was way cool, right? But for whatever your love language of God is, when you're speaking that language and you're connecting with those truths, that truth about God and his love for you, there should be some deep emotional connection. Seek that out, wonder about that, lean into that, find that, and let others take you on that journey. Let us take you on that journey. And it's all about with you, right? This is God's answer to Moses, right? I don't have the gifts to do this, I'll be with you, right? Every time there's a significant thing going on in our lives and our journey of following Jesus, his word is, I'm with you, right? When someone's grieving a loss, I don't go in and try and explain theologically what just happened for them. I go in and recognize that being present with them is a symbol of God being present with them and that the most important thing they know is God is with them, right? Even when we can't explain, I am with you. It's all about being with you. And then Moses deep in that character of his, boldly says, now show me your glory. You want a prayer for a year? Just do this one every day. God, show me your glory. And then make sure you spend some time actually watching, because as Sam quoted from Belgian, thanks for all the sermon material, by the way, Sam, right? Um, as he quoted from the Belgian Confession, Article 2, I think it is, right? All of creation is screaming where God is, and all of the Bible is screaming where God is, so pay some attention to God, and he will actually show you his glory. And glory is another one of those words which I wish I could just simply explain to you, but it comes in so many forms. It's God. It's that overwhelming presence and experience of God. And some of you might see it in a sunset, and some of you might see it in a poem, and some of us might see it in really well-crafted words, so I can't tell you where you're going to see it, but God wants to reveal himself, his glory, his power to you. And I think you'll know you're there when you're one, in awe, and two, feel incredibly loved, incredibly warm, incredibly embraced by who God is, that he knows who you are, and he's showing you your glory, his glory. Rock of ages cleft for me. Did you all start saying that when you read this passage? Maybe a little bit better than I just did. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock. Other than the song Rock of Ages in this verse, does anybody use cleft on a reasonably regular basis? No? That's one of those Bible words, right? It's a crack in the rock or a crevice. And I love this. Picture this with me. When my glory passes by, God says to Moses, I will put you in a cleft in the rock. I don't know what you picture, but I see God's hand. He's going to cover entire Moses, right? So he picks him up, and he stuffs him in the hole, right? And I think Moses falls, right? If God picks you up and moves you, you're moving, right? This is God. And again, I, I, there's no further explanation. There's no other spot where this kind of stuff happens, but that's my image. And then he covers him with his hand. Like, I can cover, I can cover all of Greg with my hand like this, but that's not the idea, right? If I get, sorry, Greg, you're on today. I can't do it like this. My hand's pretty big, but it's not nearly big enough to cover an entire year. So what a beautiful image of, we sing, he's got the whole world in his hand. So this huge mitt of God covers Moses in that spot, right? And I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And, and it says why. 
You can't handle the truth would be the movie version of it. You can't see God, right? So here's the thing. Pray, now show me your glory every day. Expect that you will see some version, some taste of the glory. But all of that, as happens here, comes through a veil, comes through God covering, God keeping you from actually seeing the fullness of his glory because you can't handle that kind of truth, right? That kind of power of God. And then this, I've now jumped all the way to the part where God passes by. And he says this, this is God saying his name, right? So these whole rest of the words that you're gonna see on the screen that are from the Bible are God's name or one of his names, he has many. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, and you see those are all written in capitals. I don't know if our Bibles do that and you can't check because they're not in the pews, but when you see the word Lord, in four capital letters in the Bible, that means it's actually Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, right, or W-H. Um, that's the unpronounceable name of God in the Old Testament. So this isn't God in general. If you just see the word God, that's Elohim, that every, every, everybody has a God, every culture has a God, every religion has a God, right? But our religion's God is named Yahweh. And when you see Lord in four capital letters, that's Yahweh, Yahweh. That's him saying, I am personally talking to you here. This is not just some God, some power, right? The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Pretty good so far, right? Everybody happy with those words, right? Hang on to that thought because it gets a little harder, right? This is the part of God that's the easy sell, right? This is the part of God that everybody wants to hang on to because God is incredibly loving, he's incredibly gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, right? Well, that brings back a memory, so I apparently have to tell you. My son, I think it was, was in Sunday school many years ago, and he comes home and he says, Dad, we were learning about God and that he's a father. He says, and Dad, you're a father, right? He said, yeah. And then he says those scary words, and God is, the Father is slow to anger. Hard pause. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> Very convicting, by the way. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness there, by the way, is just one word, chesed. If you have Germanic roots in your language, Dutch or German, you can probably do chesed. Everyone say chesed after me. There you go. Wipe the back of your head from the person behind you. <laughs> that means loving, steadfast faithfulness. Abounding in love and faithfulness is actually right all captured there, right? The very nature of God is to be lovingly faithful, right? And so when Moses calls him out boldly in the story, again, because all of these words here, they're not just theology, they're in the story. When go Moses calls out God, he's saying, you have to act out of your nature. You got to be faithful even when these people are unfaithful because it's your nature that's faithful even if their nature is not faithful. That's who our God is, right? I sometimes hear people walking around with this sort of sense that I'm too bad for God to love me and forgive me and to welcome me in, right? Some version of that. You can't win that game, right? God's very nature is not angry and upset Right? His very nature is to be loving and faithful and to want nothing more than to reconcile with you and connect with you. All right? And we're going to carry on looking at that. 
Now, beginning of verse 7, still really good. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Again, it's the part of God we love, right? That he loves thousands, right? And that he's forgiving. He wants to take what's wrong in this world, forgive it, heal it, and restore that relationship. And you can tell, by the way, I've been leading up to this, that it's not going to keep going in this direction. What about this? Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children, now, and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Full stop. Now, what do we do with that? First, let's look at this. We need to see the structure. So, verse 7, this is all we're talking about here is verse 7, says, showing his love to the thousands, a number, forgiving, an action, and then an action, punishing to the threes and the fours. And I write it that way because my good friend Tim Mackey, who knows Hebrew way better than I do, says, the correct translation of this passage is he shows love to the thousands, forgiving them, right? But does not fail to punish, and he visits that on the threes and the fours. It doesn't say generations there. It doesn't actually say generations anywhere in this, this thing. It's still a good translation. I'm just telling you it doesn't actually say the word generations in this passage. I think because this looks like a small chiasm, for those of you who are into chiasms, right? Starts with a number, ends with a number, has two acts in the middle, that the parallels here are that it's not that he shows love to thousands of people, it's to thousands of generations. And a generation is 40 years, so 1,000 times 40 by my math is 40,000 years, which is probably longer than most of us can imagine, which is therefore forever, right? So God shows love forever, right? And we're good with that. But that punishing part, first thing to note is that it goes through the threes and the fours, and if the thousands is a generation, then so are the threes and the fours, so three and four generations, right? So God does punish, but it's a much smaller repertoire, right? Now, most of us, to be honest, think this way. If God can forgive, why doesn't he just kind of overlook everything that all of us have done and usher us all into the happy place and everything will be fine, right? Anybody in favor of that move? At least when it comes to your sin, right? Now, think about that person who's sinned against you. Think about the hurt that you have received. Are you really cool with, without any apologies, somebody can hurt you, get off scot-free and walk away? I know you aren't, because if you ever do come with, to me with the scars in your life, that's precisely why you have those scars. Somebody hurt you, and if there's no justice, if there's no forgiveness, if there's no healing, you're stuck with that, right? So God's very nature is to say, I am going to be two things. I am going to be merciful and just, right? He's an incredibly loving and forgiving God. See the golden calf deal, right? These people in that moment when they made him very anger, angry, Moses' boldness came in and he forgave, right? And his forgiving worked like this. Moses said, you can read this in Exodus 32, Moses said, all right, those of you who knew you've done wrong, come on over here and, and confess that sin. That's paraphrased, but that's basically what he said. And 3,000 people came on over. This is how forgiveness works, right? You know you've done something wrong. Someone calls you out and says, hey, if you've done something wrong, you should probably confess that. We do that in church on a regular basis. Then confess it, and God freely forgives. He's incredibly loving. But if you decide, like some of these Israelites did, that, you know what? I don't like God's rules. 
I don't care that he wants me to worship him and him only and not use idols. I'm doing it my way. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Has anybody ever done it their way? Right? This is our core issue, by the way. This is the thing we need to regularly confess. So right after, God, show me your glory, say, sorry. Right? Because a lot of times you want to say, God, let me show you my glory. Right? Or why don't you look at my glory? Why don't you follow what I want to do? Right? And so God, in that moment, does also punish. Because if there is no sense of punishment, if there's no actual justice in this world, we don't want to live here, none of us. Right? And so we need to differentiate between that, I really want God to be loving to me and forgive me, and he can just give me carte blanche, please, and thank you very much. And he wants to, just ask him for it. That's exactly his nature. Just ask him for it, and he forgives. It's that simple. But recognize that you do also want there to be justice, and that if you have no interest whatsoever in saying, God, I need to humble myself before you. I've got some stuff to work on here. I need to be in forgiveness prayer with you, that you're going on this third and fourth generation thing, right? And it sort of works like this. It doesn't work this way, by the way. It's not that God says, we have a few three or four generation families here, so you get to imagine yourself, right? So you got grandpa. He did a couple of bad things along the way, and we're not so happy about that, right? And some of those character traits got passed on. But somewhere along the way, in the second or third generation, someone said, that's not right. It was not right that that happened in my life. I'm going to confess that I've accepted that happening. I'm going to ask for God's forgiveness and for his healing, and I'm going to stop that trend from the previous generation, right? So when it says God punishes to the third and fourth generation, he's not ignoring that. You can stop this any time. God will forgive any time along the way. But if you just continue in those things, they're going to continue to haunt you because God must have justice as well. He must deal with those things. He must face those things. So it's this simple. Forgiveness is free. It's right there. Just ask for it. Just deal with it, right? But when you don't do those things, it's going to actually keep going on. If you just look around you at any, um, any one of our many dysfunctional families, that's all of us, by the way, Right? Those are the things that we keep passing on. But here again, all we need to do to put a stop to those journeys is to name them, confess them, bring them before God, and allow for his healing touch. And it stops and it ends. As I was saying all that, a really good thing came to my mind that was from Tim Mackey, and I can't remember it, so if you're lucky, I'll have it before the end of the day. Um, so that third and fourth generation thing sort of works like this. This is a Tim Mackey story. He says, I'm raising two little cavemen. He has two little boys, like one and a half and three. He says, I'm trying to teach them to become human beings, but right now they're still just little cavemen. And we go to the park, and they run all over, and there's all kinds of kids running all over, and I'm meeting my neighbor, and it's really cool. And then some other parent says to their daughter, it's time to go home. And she loses it. Because what crazier thing could a parent ever say to their child than, why don't we go home so I can feed you and bathe you and put you in bed, right? That's the craziest thing you can ever say to your child. And they know it, right? So this kid is losing it on their parent. And of course, what are all the other little kids doing? They're watching. Wonder how this is going to turn out, right? We all like a good train wreck, right? So they're watching this, and it doesn't go so well. So the child is out. You've done this before, right, if you're a parent? 
you're now carrying, kicking and streaming child home, hoping, not making eye contact with anybody because you just embarrassed yourself in your parenting skills, even though it's not your fault, right? And you go home. Now, Tim has to get his two little cavemen to go home. You know where this is going, right? Okay, boys, we're going home. They've seen that other thing. No, I hate you. Okay, now what are we gonna do? They have a similar messy scene. And they take their child home, and because this child's punishment is sitting in the timeout chair in the corner, right? Lucky if that actually works for your kids, because that's not the worst one in the world, right? He does that. He sends him to the corner. He gets a few more, I hate you, daddies, from the corner, so he gets a couple more minutes in the corner, right? That's the deal. What's going on there? He is dealing with the fact that the threes and the fours, the third and fourth generation stuff is happening. His child is the second generation from that other child who freaked out, right? If he doesn't deal with this in either forgiveness, if the kid had said, sorry, dad, and just got forgiveness, or punishment, it just carries on. It reproduces and it keeps going. We need to deal with these things. Clearly, the simplest way is always confession and forgiveness. I did it, I'm sorry, right? If not, those messy things that we do, those unloving things that we do are going to carry on and we'll need to process them and deal with them and move on from them, right? God is incredibly loving. That is deeply his nature. He wants nothing more than to restore relationship with you, but he can't just let things go, right? And then Jesus comes along. And sometimes we say it this way, I want to try and correct that for a minute. Sometimes we say it this way, that God is so angry at people that he takes it out on Jesus, and that's why he had to die, and we get forgiven. I don't know that that's good parenting, right? I hope that's not how you parent, so let's hope that God doesn't parent that way. It's not that God is by nature angry, it's God is by nature loving. He sees that there's a problem here, and he wants to enter in. That's what Jesus, Jesus is God coming in and going, there's a problem here, and I want to, as God, come right in with you and be with you and figure this out and show you my glory. Jesus actually says that in John chapter 1. I want to be with you in that challenge. And it gets him killed. I think that's a better way of putting it than God killed him. It gets him killed because for some strange reason, we don't like it when the world gets back on even terms. Don't know why. Doesn't make sense when I say it that way, does it? But there's something about us that doesn't like it when God comes down and tries to make things the way they're actually supposed to be, loving and forgiving and healing and all those wonderful things. But Jesus comes, does it anyways, and the ultimate story, death can't hold him, sin can't hold him, he rises from the dead, and forgiveness is right there in Jesus Christ. There are two ways. God is loving and compassionate to thousands of generations. There's not a single person here that he doesn't want to forgive instantly and immediately as you ask it from him. But he will make sure, and you're welcome for this from God, he will make sure that truth and justice happen in the end, and that things get worked out the way they should. So take that wonderful opportunity, take that wonderful opportunity and allow God to bring deep healing in your life. Let him show you his glory. The best version of it is God saying, I love you and I forgive you and you are mine. That's what he wants to say. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ,
thank you for your incredible love. Thank you for coming and walking among us and showing us the Father's glory and being full of grace and truth. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you evidenced all the characteristics of your Father. Now we pray that we would be able to see and trust and step in and receive your forgiving love and that it would shape us and restore our relationships and our community and help us to be a beacon of light in your world through those very wonderful, simple things. This we pray in your holy name. Amen.